This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. In this episode, Dr. Than Ong, a neurology SHO at Great Ormond Street, will be interviewing Dr. Maria Gogu, one of the senior clinical fellows in paediatric neurology, on the topic of common childhood epilepsy syndromes, a topic that could come up under the neurology section of the MRC-PCH syllabus. Hi, Maria. I'm Aun. I have some questions about childhood epilepsy. Hi. Yes, thank you very much. Of course, we can start. So the first question is, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? Well, I would say that first thing is to be able to recognize the most important electroclinical features of common childhood epilepsy syndromes, to be able to discuss their outcomes with patients and families, and also to avoid some common diagnostic pitfalls. Thank you. First of all, what do you mean by epilepsy syndrome? Is there a definition? Yes, so when we say epilepsy syndrome, we mean that we can classify some entities under some common electrical and clinical features. And when I say electrical, I refer to EEG, to electrographic patterns. So if some types of epilepsies share some common clinical signs and common electrographic patterns, we can classify them under the term epilepsy syndrome. Oh, like the signs and then the electrographic better. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And when we talk about children, which are the most common epilepsy syndromes that a pediatrician may encounter? I think that the most pediatricians in their career will have to deal with children with self-limited epilepsy with central temporal spikes. This is the new definition for what we used to call Rolandic epilepsy. They will also encounter cases of self-limited epilepsy with autonomic seizures. They will also see a significant number of children and adolescents with absence epilepsy, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, as well as uh, generalized tonic-clonic seizures as the sole seizure manifestation. Oh yes, so there are varieties of epilepsy syndromes. Let's start with the relatic epilepsy. How easy is the diagnosis? Well, actually, Rolandic is a very common idiopathic focal epilepsy in children. The age of onset ranges from 3 to 13 years, but the peak age of onset is 6 to 9 years. The clinical manifestations are quite typical, so the majority of seizures emerge from sleep. And the semiology of the events typically includes focal motor seizures, and I mean twitching of the one side of the face, which is usually maximal over the labial commissure area. And there can also be some spreading of the twitching to the ipsilateral upper and sometimes lower limb. Those children can also have somatosensory symptoms. And I mean a feeling of numbness or paresthesias over the tongue, over the inner of their cheeks, around their lips as well. They have prominent cyanuria and a prominent difficulty to speak. So, I mean, those symptoms are quite typical. Sometimes, this is not so frequent, but it can happen. 
they can also have generalized tonic-clonic seizures. So, I mean, they start with a seizure which is focal, as I have described, and the seizure then can secondarily become generalized and have generalized convulsion. And usually the course of this syndrome is self-limited. So most children have few attacks during their life, and most of them grow out of this type of epilepsy. In a few cases, they may also have seizures during daytime. So this is something a clinician needs to have in mind. And diagnosis can also be supported by the EEG. So if we do an EEG, an interictal EEG in those children, we will see spikes over the central temporal areas of the brain. So this is something which can support our initial diagnosis. If the presentation is very typical for this epilepsy syndrome, then an MRI scan might not be finally needed. But if some red flags are present, for instance, a very prominent focal EEG finding or other symptoms beyond epilepsy, this decision, of course, needs to be reconsidered. Because the course of seizures is self-limited, sometimes we may not treat them at all. But if we decide to offer treatment in case a child has more frequent events, for instance, we can use agents like lamotrigine or levetiracetam, carbamazepine or oxcobazepine. And another significant point is that although seizures tend to reduce and children grow out of them, they can sometimes have language difficulties and some mild learning difficulties as well. So it's not totally benign. So do we really need to treat this epilepsy? Yes, I mean, this is a question of balancing between the benefit of treatment and the adverse events of medications, because antiseptic medications can have adverse events. So I would say that this is something to be discussed and explained to parents or carers and reach a common decision. If a child has frequent seizures and parents or carers cannot deal with that very well, then it would be reasonable to start a treatment. However, if a child has few and infrequent attacks, then I think we have the opportunity to watch and wait. Oh, I see. And next to the syndrome with the difficult Greek names called Panagiotopoulos. I want to know about that. Yes, Panagiotopoulos, again, it's the old name. Now, according to the new definitions, we tend to call this epilepsy syndrome self-limited epilepsy with autonomic seizures. So a longer name. So in this syndrome, children have autonomic seizures, which are focal. And in the majority of cases, they emerge from sleep again, as it happens with Rolanding epilepsy. The typical age of onset is younger than in Rolanding epilepsy, three to six years, but it can still range from one up to 14 years of age. So what happens is that the child will wake up with first symptoms being a feeling of sickness and retching and nausea. And then they will develop a number of very typical autonomic symptoms like headaches, getting pale in their face, vomiting, uh, facial flushing, hypersalivation, or sometimes even incontinence. Their pupils tend to get white. And this can go on for almost half an hour or even more. It's not unlikely that a child may even develop an autonomic status of those symptoms. Sometimes non-autonomic symptoms can also appear and those children can have deviation of their eyes and have hemiclonic seizures or even generalized hemiclonic seizures, although in most cases the characteristic seizures are the autonomic ones. 
this is again a self-limited epilepsy. So the vast majority of children will have very few attacks in their life. It's not unlikely that in clinical practice uh, we may get confused and misinterpret those symptoms and think that this is a gastroenteritis or a migraine attack. I also need to mention that in Panagiotopoulos syndrome, seizure semiology can present like acute encephalopathy with this history of vomiting and reduced consciousness, as I have already said. And so diagnosis may be difficult unless it is early considered. And also the fact that most patients have very few seizures further increases this difficulty of diagnosis. So, I mean, pediatricians really need to be aware of that and counsel families. If we do an EEG, we will see that those children have multifocal spikes. I mean, spikes in different parts of their brain. Although in most cases, those spikes need to be in the back of the head. So over occipital areas, as we say. Also, in a smaller number of children, we may also have seizures during daytime. And those seizures can look like a syncope, a syncope-like event. So children can suddenly get very flaccid or unresponsive, or even if they stand or they sit. So again, this is something we need to have in our mind when we think about potential differential diagnosis. But yeah, the most prominent clinical features are the autonomic seizures. Oh, yes, because this comes with the vomiting, right? Yeah, exactly. And because it's so self-limited, as I said, for Orlandic epilepsy, sometimes we may not treat that at all. I would say in most cases, we may choose not to treat this syndrome and watch and, and wait. Oh, I see. I think there is an epilepsy syndrome of childhood with predominantly occipital seizures. Yes, this is less frequent than the previous two. This is called childhood occipital epilepsy gastotype. And what those children have as seizures are visual hallucinations. And more specifically, what happens is that they see colorful circles in their visual fields. Sometimes they may also complain about visual loss, or they may exhibit eye blinking or eye deviation or headaches. It is also a self-limited epilepsy, but not so self-limited as Rolandic epilepsy and as Panagiotopoulos, as we said before. And if we treat this syndrome, we will usually use anti-seizure medications which cover focal seizures. So like carbamazepine, lamotrigine, levetiracetam. And from a diagnostic point of view, yeah, I think the most prominent clinical feature is the visual hallucinations. And if we do an EEG to support our diagnosis, we will see very frequent spikes over the occipital areas again, which tend to become more in number if the child closes the eyes or if we find a way to eliminate central vision. What I mean is if we ask the child to have their eyes open in a dark room or if we give them to wear some dark glasses. So in those cases, the spikes in the EG tend to get more and this can help with diagnosis as well. Because it's predominantly occipital in nature? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And what about the generalized epilepsy syndrome, like absences? Yeah, I mean, absence perhaps is one of the most frequent generalized epilepsies in children. So what we call as childhood absence epilepsy, this happens in children older than four years of age. Usually the peak age, I would say, is the early school age, like between five and seven years old. 
And those children have multiple vacant spells during daytime, which tend to cluster and get more and more as the disease evolves. Those vacant spells are very sudden. They start very suddenly and they finish very suddenly as well. And they tend to be quite brief. I mean, about 10 to 20 seconds. And what we characteristically can see is that the child suddenly stops their activity and look vacant, stare. They may drift upwards and they are unresponsive and they may also have eyelid blinking. Whereas in some cases, we can also have some more complex automatisms like lip smacking or manual automatisms or repeating a couple of words. As I said, the number of those absences can be really high during the day, and this can interfere with a child's learning and school activities. So we need to treat those seizures. The outcome is quite good, I would say. So most children, more than two thirds of them, may finally wean off medications after a couple of years. However, in some cases, those children can develop other seizure types later in their life. So they may develop generalized tonic-clonic seizure in their adolescence, for example, although this is a minority of cases. And of course, the EEG, if we perform an EEG in those children and capture an absent seizure, what we will see is a very characteristic burst of generalized spike and wave discharges, which tend to be between 3 and 4 hertz for those who know a bit more about that. And of course, it's relatively easy to provoke an absence in a child who has absence epilepsy, if we do hyperventilation, so if we ask from this child to take deep in and out breaths, and after a while, this can elicit an absence. If we are clinically confident about the diagnosis of a childhood or juvenile absence epilepsy, an MRI is not required. Is there a difference between absent starting in childhood and absent starting in adolescence? Yes, actually there is. So from a clinical point of view, both are absent seizures, so they look quite similar. However, what happens in juvenile absence epilepsy, as we call that, is that absences appear in an older child. I mean, in a child older than nine or 10 years of age. So in the beginning of the adolescence, they are not so frequent as it happens in childhood absence epilepsy. They do not cluster so much. I mean, they do not tend to appear one after the other as in childhood absence epilepsy. And the impaired of awareness is not so severe as in childhood absence epilepsy. However, the difference is that in juvenile absence epilepsy, those absences are not self-limited and they tend to persist throughout life. So, I mean, those children usually need a long-term treatment with other seizure medication. And another significant difference is that most of those adolescents who have juvenile absence epilepsy, it is quite likely that they will also have other seizure types, like generalized tonic-clonic seizures, at the same time, which is a difference from childhood epilepsy, because if generalized seizures appeared, this would happen many years after the termination of the absence seizure. So, yeah, this is the difference. Juvenile absence epilepsy is a more long-term condition, a lifelong condition, I would say. And what I didn't mention is that it's about treatment of the absences. So in children, when we have childhood absence epilepsy, a very good medication, as you know very well, as well, is uh, ethosuximide, which is very good for covering absences. 
And we can also use agents like Lamotrigy or Valgrade, although Valgrade might be a bit challenging when used for female. The difference in juvenile absence epilepsy is that we need to cover those patients with an additional medication, which is also effective for generalized seizures, not just for absences. So from this point of view, we would go with agents like lamotrigine or levetiracetam or valproate rather than ethosoximide alone. Oh, thank you for clarification. And what about juvenile myoclonic epilepsy? This is another well-known syndrome, which happens in older children. So I would say they can appear from adolescence until the early years of adulthood. And as the, the name implies, the main seizure type is myoclonic seizure. And myoclonic seizures are very brief musculatures. In this syndrome, they mainly affect the upper part of the body, the shoulders and the upper limbs. And they usually happen in the morning. So while the child is waking up from sleep or shortly after that, sometimes they can be really prominent and they may also cluster as well. So those children can drop things or they can be prone to falls or other injuries. It is quite likely that they have other seizure types as well. I mean, generalized onychronic seizures or sometimes even absences. Lack of sleep, I would say, is a quite prominent trigger of this seizure type. So if a child hasn't slept well, this can trigger easily this type of myoclonic seizures next morning. Alcohol is also an important trigger, especially for adolescents. And again, this is a lifelong condition. So children can respond very well to anti-seizure medication. However, they usually need to take them for long because the recurrence rate, if we try to stop them, is quite high. I need to highlight that tonic-clonic seizures, though infrequent, represent the most serious and intrusive seizure type in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. And this is actually the main reason lifelong treatment is required. Again, diagnosis can be made on a clinical basis if a child describes this very characteristic type of events. But it is also important that patients presenting with tonic-clonic seizures early in the course of the disease, may not volunteer the history of myoclonic jerks on awakening, and so this history must be specifically sought when we take our medical history. We can also make an EG and we can see the characteristic pattern of, as we call it, popoli spikes, so multiple spikes followed by a slow wave. And most of those patients as well are quite photosensitive, I mean that if we apply photic stimulation during the EEG, we can elicit characteristic EEG changes. Again, if we are clinically confident about the diagnosis, an MRI is not required. And treatment, again, as in absences, I mean, we use medications which are effective for generalized seizures. So Valproate, Levetiracetam are very good options. Lamotrigine can also be an option, although in some cases it can exacerbate myoclonic seizures. So this is something we must have in our mind when we discuss with those patients and their parents. And there is a number of medications which can also exacerbate both myoclonic seizures and absences. And this is corpamazepine, oxcarbazepine, oxcanidoin. So we don't use those agents when a child has absences or myoclonic seizures because they can make them worse. Oh, thank you. Is there an epilepsy syndrome in childhood with only generalized tonic-clonic seizures? 
Actually, yes. We can have children who have generalized epilepsy and have only generalized chronic seizures without any other seizure type. And this is something which becomes clear with time. As time goes by and no other seizure types appear, we are more confident about diagnosis. And also, in that case, in order to say that we have diagnosed this condition, we definitely need an EEG. Because sometimes, as you know very well, it's challenging to differentiate between a generalized seizure and a focal seizure with secondary generalization. So, although in all previous syndromes, clinical description can offer very viable diagnostic clues, in the case of generalized epilepsy with only generalized tonic seizures, we also definitely need an EEG to support this diagnosis. And treatment is, again, all those medications which are effective for generalized epilepsy. And all those epilepsy syndromes, childhood and juvenile absence epilepsy, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, or epilepsy with generalized tonic seizures only, are classified as idiopathic generalized epilepsy, and their etiology is presumed to be genetic. Oh, thank you. Could we also say a few words about epileptic encephalopathy and what does this really mean? Yes. Well, the new term to describe epileptic encephalopathy is actually developmental epileptic encephalopathy. So those conditions represent a group, I would say, a group of epilepsies, a group of various epilepsy syndromes different from those that we have discussed today, which are quite severe. I mean, they are drug-resistant epilepsies and also are accompanied by significant developmental delay as well as regression, which was not the case in the syndromes we spoke about today. And what happens in those conditions is that we presume that we have an underlying cause of epilepsy, for example, a genetic cause or a structural cause, which is responsible for epilepsy, but it's also responsible for the developmental problems. And at the same time, a poor control of epilepsy can independently have a negative impact and exacerbate developmental problems. In other words, the developmental part of the definition is related to the cause and the epileptic part to the epileptic activity itself. So what happens in those severe conditions is that at the same time, a poorly controlled epilepsy and an underlying cause act at the same time and give genesis to significant developmental problems. Oh, yes. Just a little bit complex. Yes. And perhaps is a topic for another podcast. Yeah, I see. Yeah. To sum up, are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? Yeah. So I would say that clinical semiologies of seizures is quite significant and the trainees may, may be asked about that. So it's important to be aware of seizure semiology as well as about the most important treatment options for those syndromes. So in that case, the history taking is a key, right? Yes, I would say that this falls within history taking section. Okay. Are there any useful resources that you would recommend for further reading? I would say that it would be good to have a look at the paper published in 2022 by International League Against Epilepsy Task Force on solids and definition. And this is a paper which summarizes 
the most important things about epilepsy syndromes with onset in childhood. People can also have a look at the NICE UK guidelines for children with epilepsy, which were updated in 2022. There is also, for those who are interested in more detailed reading, a book recently published by John Lippe Eurotext, which has the title Epileptic Syndromes in Infants, Children, Adolescents. Of course, the website of International Link Against Epilepsy has viable and free access resources. And they can also register and take a course organized by BPNA, Pediatric Epilepsy Training Number 2. Oh, thank you. And what are your three takeaway learning points? Ah, well, first, I would say that although in some cases, like Rolanding or Panagiotopoulos syndrome, seizures tend to emerge from sleep, we must have in our mind that those children can also have seizures during daytime. This is important. Second, I would say that although in some cases seizures are self-limited and children may grow out of seizures while they grow up, this does not mean that they may not have other kinds of difficulties like learning problems, language difficulties or behavioral difficulties, and this needs to be taken into account. And third, I would say that all those we have described the most typical phenotype of childhood epilepsy syndromes. We may also have a big number of patients with seizures, with epilepsy, who do not fall within any of those categories. So apparently there is no reason to try and put necessarily a patient under a name or under classification because sometimes syndromes can evolve with time or even overlap. Thank you, Maria, for answering my questions and clarification about the child epilepsy syndromes. I think I have to read more. Yes, thank you very much for the question. Thank you, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.